This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Zinni. Navon, did you hear about the cruise ship season? It was, I feel like we need to talk about this because you and I discussed this many times during the pandemic about the fears for the cruise ship industry. Oh, yeah. And those fears were genuine. Uh, Victoria has done very well off cruise ships as well. And it was the intersection between a provision in U.S. law and the pandemic. So U.S. law says that if you're going to carry passengers or freight, between U.S. ports, so say Seattle and Juneau, Alaska, uh, the ship has to be built in the United States. Cruise ships are not built in the United States. It's too expensive. They're built elsewhere because it's cheaper. And so when Canada closed its ports to the cruise ships during the pandemic, it meant that the regular cruise ships running between Seattle and Juneau, Alaska and the elsewhere in Alaska, uh, couldn't run because they couldn't stop in Canada to qualify. If you stop in a Canadian port, you're not going between two U.S. ports, and the law doesn't apply. So we uh, initially, John Horgan scoffed at the possibility the Americans would do anything about it, but he underestimated the Alaska congressional delegation. They put fast-tracked legislation through the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives, and President Biden signed it. And what the provision did was it basically exempted the cruise ship industry from the legal requirement for the ships to be built in the U.S. so they couldn't go between two U.S. ports. That was the law. Uh, We managed to dodge the bullet on this, Simi, because it was a one-time thing. They just changed it for one season. There was talk, Simi, of making the exemption permanent, but uh, trade unions are powerful in the United States and the president is uh, very closely aligned with them. And the unions didn't want a permanent exemption because they thought it would undermine the long-term prospects for the U.S. shipbuilding industry. So uh, that's what happened. It was one season only. Uh, The law expired. Uh, The cruise ships came back. The pandemic faded and along with it, the issues. And as you say, Simi, we're thriving in a way we haven't before. Although I did appreciate John telling you that also Seattle is thriving. We're still competing with Seattle. And I don't know if we're going to be able to uh, sustain the same rate of growth as they do down there. Right. And especially, and we'll see if this even lasts, right? We don't know if this is like pandemic, people were saving up to do this, and if next year will be the same or the year after will be the same. That's a a good question. You know, one analysis that I've heard and seen is that, well, aging population, baby boomers, they like the safety of the cruise ship. They just take their luggage on board and they don't have to drag it around. They can go ashore. They can travel around. Uh, I mean, all of the amenities are wonderful. Uh, The flip side of that, of course, is uh, worrying about, uh, you know, people describing a cruise ship as a giant floating Petri dish for 
respiratory illness and that. So yeah, I don't know how that's going to work in the long run. I uh, heard you say, Simi, you're going to try the different kind of cruise, which is the one uh, that goes on the rivers, Yeah. where when you dock in the town on the river, it's a fairly small group that comes ashore. It's not a city. And so that might be one of the, one of the fields of cruising that, that does work. But it, at the moment, there's a very high interest in the cruise ship industry here on the West Coast. It's terrific news for Vancouver and for Victoria. Also, yeah, you should come with us, Vaughn. We're going to do the D-Day beaches. <laughs> We're going to have a great time. Come on, come with us. <laughs> <laughs> you handing out free tickets or do I have to enter the contest and answer a skill-testing question? Uh, yeah, you might have to enter the contest on that one. <laughs> uh, let's talk about what else is going on here. The big announcement yesterday had to do yeah. with the fast-track recognition of international credentials. Yeah, this is another very ambitious piece of legislation from the David Eby government. You know, we had the short-term rental thing and other bills this fall. It's not been a light session. And this is international credentials recognition. It is the province stepping in and fixing a problem that has been trying to fix a problem that's been known about for years, which is there are so many barriers to a foreign educated doctor, architect, engineer, social worker, actually getting to practice his or her profession here in British Columbia. Uh, they took a stab at it with nurses and doctors. We've now got a bill, Simi, that does it for 29 professions. And it tries to sweep away some of the most ridiculous barriers you've ever heard of. My favorite is the catch-22 barrier that you can't actually get credentials and approval to practice here in Canada until you've had experience here in Canada. But how the hell are you supposed to get the experience if you're not allowed to practice? So that, yeah, one. there are also incredible requirements for language testing and you've got to go back every year and get retested, even if you're fluent in English. So the bill tries to sweep all that away and I will say, Simi, that the intentions are good. These problems have been known for a long time. The legislation is ambitious in that respect. But as with a lot of other things that the EB government has done, watch and see how it plays out. All right. We will do that. And also we have, of course, more Surrey to talk about. Uh, the premier says, you know, the provincial government is aware of additional costs associated with this and... We'll be there at the table to support Surrey, which was interpreted by those of us familiar with the English language as a pretty strong hint that the government was willing to put more money on the table in order to get a deal, that it would, uh, was aware there were more costs and uh, it would be there to support Surrey. Uh, two days later, Mike Farmer comes out and says, no, 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 he's the bad cop in this good cop, bad cop act. He comes out and says, no, there's no more money. There's no more money. That's it. $150 million, transition funding, take it or leave it. Uh, so after that, yesterday, um, I asked the premier during his news conference, uh, could he clarify the government's position? And he said, no more money. That's the clip uh, Global's using. It's been on your news this morning. No more money. That's it. $150 million in transition funding. Uh, and that's it. And then he says, you know, Surrey should come to the table. And of course, the thought that crosses one's mind is, if there's no more money, what is there to talk about? Well, yeah. Well, and you get into the hints. So the premier says, well, you know, uh, first of all, Surrey could come and tell us, uh, you know, what all these costing figures they have, because we haven't seen them. 
And then he says, you know, Brenda Locke, uh, she's made a couple of really good points that she's, Brenda Locke has tried to clarify the numbers that Doug McCallum, the former mayor of Surrey, wouldn't discuss about costing. He said, I commend her for bringing these figures forward. And then he says, you know, for example, uh, training of police officers. Well, we could talk about that. We could talk about who's going to pay for that. So I listen to all this and I go, so he, he tells us there's no more money and then he hints, well, if you come to the table and you've got your numbers in order and you've got a good case to make that Doug McCallum didn't tell everybody what was going on out there and you want to talk about who's going to train the new Surrey police force and who's going to pay for that, well, we can talk about that. Hmm. So <laughs> I'm, I'm trying like, to figure out what this actually means. Like I'm trying to read it, between the lines here. So is it is it possible that when you talk about police training, well, that's something that might not yeah. just benefit Surrey. They could make the argument that this is going to benefit all municipalities. Yeah, and we didn't get into it, but uh, there's a capital cost issue associated with the new police force. So how are we going to pay for all that, right? I mean, I, I think what we see here, you know, every expert in labor relations who's ever spoken on this issue and expert in negotiation will always say the first thing is stop negotiating in public. Get to the damn table, right? And and sure, you may have a few preconditions, but don't have too many. I'm, one of BC government's obvious preconditions is that Surrey, stop fighting this in court. We're not going to go there if you're going to keep trying to overturn this in court. And that's a fair provincial government position. But if you're at Surrey's end of it and you're going, well, are they coming to the table with more money or aren't they? And what are the preconditions? Um, again, I, I say to you, uh, this is not any way to negotiate whatever you think of the respective positions of the two, of the two sides here. Okay, but this obviously isn't the end, right? No, like, there's no, going to be no. more on this. Like, happily for us, Simi, it isn't the end. Uh, you know, it, it'll keep you and I going with things to talk about uh, because there's new things every day on this one, and I, I cannot predict where this is going to end, except it's increasingly clear that it is going to cost a lot more money than we've been told, and between them provincial taxpayers and Surrey ratepayers, and in some cases, those are the same people, uh, are going to foot the bill. We don't know what the split will be. I think a big part of what's going on here, not discussed by either side, is trying to stick the other with the political heat for what all this is going to cost. And also, it'd be interesting, is he saying, come to the negotiating table, but he's not, he himself is like, I get the feeling that what Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke wants is a face-to-face -face meeting with Premier David yeah. Eby, and this doesn't sound like she would necessarily get that. No, I, I think that's true. Uh, you asked Mike Farmworth about that. He said, well, I've met with her. Yeah, he did meet with her once, right? But yeah, I mean, she's... <clears throat> she wants FaceTime. She wants to be... Yeah, she yeah. does. And, but she also wants to stick the provincial government... In the mind of Surrey voters, she wants to stick the provincial government with the blame for what this is going to cost, right? I mean, right. she is. She's bargaining in public, too, in a kind of backroom, backhanded sort of way. Uh, she's saying, for example, that she wants the provincial government to indemnify Surrey for all costs associated with it. Well, you're not going to get that either. But again, that's a public bargaining position. Uh, you know, I mean, one way through this would be for the provincial government to designate its negotiator 
uh, say, uh, Jessica McDonald, the former head of the public service, and Surrey to designate its negotiator and send them to the table. And if they can't reach a deal, you know, give them both a mandate. Uh, don't necessarily disclose it to the public until they're done and try to work out a deal. And if you can't work out a deal, well, you know, there's always an arbitrator or uh, some expert in negotiation out there to help. But that's not happening. The one thing the premier said yesterday is it's very difficult to talk about this because we're not talking. And he's right about that. And Brenda Locke says, we don't see any point in coming to the table because they're not treating us with respect. And she has a point about that. I mean, this is now a product of two political entities that are both trying to pass the blame buck to the other one because they don't want to take the political heat for what all this is going to cost. Very true and gives us something to talk about. Vaughn, thank you for that. Bye-bye, Sam.